3: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: We faced many challenges writing this book, in part because of the strongly held belief among some scholars that a history of development in Africa should convey a teleological history of economic progress. We were never going to write that book. So opens The Idea of Development in Africa, A History, a brilliant new volume forthcoming with Cambridge University Press in 2021, which summarily refutes so much of what is accepted as standard in the development industry. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ediza Prosperetti, and I'm delighted to be discussing the idea of development in Africa, the history, with professors Corey Decker and Elizabeth McMahon. Corey Decker is Associate Professor of History at the University of California, Davis. She is the author of 2014's Mobilizing Zanzibari Women, The Struggle for Respectability and Self-Reliance. Elizabeth McMahon is Associate Professor of History at Tulane University and the author of 2013's Slavery and Emancipation in Islamic East Africa, From Honor to Respectability.
2: Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us.
0: So it's uh, unusual and exciting for us at the New Books Network to have co-authors on. Often this is a conversation that is one-on-one, and so now having both of you here, I wanted to ask the first question about how you developed this project together jointly, where the ideas came from,
2: and how you work
0: together on it.
2: Well, that's a that's a big question. Um, <laughs> um, the book actually sort of originates from when Liz and I first met in London. Was it? It was London. Yeah, yeah. at the um, Aegis conference. It was like an Afri- African-European studies um, conference. In I can't remember which year, two thousand six five. five. <laughs> yeah, and um, and we were sitting in a talk by actually Elka Stockwriter, who is also a historian, works on Zanzibar. And I asked a question. I can't remember what um, exactly it was, but then Liz was sitting next to me, handed me a note saying, are you interested in social welfare in Zanzibar? <laughs> and you know, I wrote back and said, yes, exclamation point. And then after the talk was over, we, um, we had a chat and we became very good friends after that. Um, Liz, I don't know if you remember i mean this this kind of started our path on in, in thinking about our collaborations and in thinking about the history of development and welfare, um, which sort of seeped into both of our earlier earlier book projects
1: right, and you know my dissertation had been on social welfare, and Corey was very much focused on education and the history of education and and um, girls' education and thinking about that kind of larger framework that those fit into, into development. And over time, we actually wrote an article together first. um, And then we were both teaching this history of development class. And as we were teaching those classes, these issues that we just kept having conversations around these topics. And eventually that evolved into a collaborative book project. So it was, it was a long process of meeting, getting to know each other, comfortable with each other's work. We actually went and did re- a research trip together. Um, and all of that kind of process of just keep talking about the things that we were seeing. Um, but one of the things I would say about co-authoring a book, it was um, very generative in terms of ideas because you were bouncing those ideas off the other person and talking through things. And that I think made for a, a really wonderful book because of that.
0: I certainly agree that the, the writing really reads like a project that's been well edited. And I think it must be really helpful to have uh, two, two pairs of eyes going through the text and, and reading and, and working together. So you begin the book with a quote that I think is probably deliberately provocative. uh, And I want to invite you to to explain what you mean. You say, Africa's modern history has been the history of development. So what does this mean the way that you wrote it?
2: Uh, Liz, do you want me to take this one?
1: (laughs) I want you to take that one.
2: (laughs) OK, I'll take this one. Um, Yeah, I mean, what we mean by this, and this is something I think, we can get into a little bit more when we, when we talk about the central concept of the development episteme. But what we mean by this is that the idea of development has been integral to the idea of Africa for the past 200 years. And, um, and the book has really, um, the shape of the book sort of reflects three Definitions that we're using in, in trying to understand development. Um, the first definition of development is um, what we're calling the development episteme or the knowledge system that um, has produced information about Africa, um, social, political, environmental, cultural, etc., um, during this period. Um, the second definition is um, the Policies and practices that have been in place have been designed um, to transform the continent of Africa and and African societies and the third definition is um, relating to the impact of those policies and the experiences of um, development interventions, um, especially among um, Africans themselves. And these three definitions of development sort of define um, or sort of set up the three different parts of the book. So the book is organized around those those definitions. Liz, do you want to say something about the, um, the concept, the working concept or central concept of the episteme, development episteme?
1: Um. I'd be happy to. So uh, the first section of the the book it's uh, four chapters, and each one of them kind of takes us somewhat chronologically through this idea that a that what we call the development episteme, this knowledge system, is created over time, especially in the nineteenth century, through European efforts. Um, to kind of scientifically know uh, Africa, right? As well as the kind of missionary imperialist uh, project to disseminate European forms of Christianity, commerce, civilization, that sounds very David Livingston, right? Um, And the the combination of these two things come together to um, form this kind of overarching understanding of what development should look like should be and will be right that and that, that modernity is part of that development right and so the development episteme is this whole package that comes together and part of the piece of that is that it is fundamentally based on an understanding of race right that africans are racialized right in ways that um are frankly, place them lower in a, in a kind of social hierarchy from Europeans right and none of this is is necessarily new, but thinking about that as a nineteenth century concept that then we can see it coming into the 20th century and impacting into the 21st century as well, right, and that that development episteme is still there, the pieces of it what we think about as international development and the present day, we can track into these earlier cycles into the 19th century.
0: Yeah, I think that you provide in this book, the kind of best kind of critique that historians can bring to to ideas and practices of the present, a deeply historically grounded understanding of the ways that people think about the world and how that shapes their actions. So you develop this concept of the development episteme, and that's really central and we're we're going to to develop and unpack it a little bit more. But in the introduction, you juxtapose it with a concept of vernacular development, which felt like something that isn't as present in a lot of books that I've read on development. So talk to us a little bit about what vernacular development means here and, and why you chose to
2: put it so prominently in the introduction? Um, I'll Sure, I'll take that, <laughs> that question. Um, yeah, I mean, partly what we wanted to do is to, is to introduce other ways of imagining the definition of development right off the bat, so that when we're looking at the history of development and at how it unfolds and how it shapes the present, there is always that kind of possibility of seeing other other ways of being right other other things that could happen, other interpretations, other understandings, and it's also a way to um, to introduce the the critique right which you know the critiques which come periodically throughout the book and um, and which is really kind of the point that we that we end on um, but the you know to give you an example of how ideas of development are um, you know, how, you know, the development episteme sort of presents one very clear, very definitive understanding of progress, right? Um, but our point in, in, in including the vernacular development section is to demonstrate that there are other understandings and interpretations of this term, of this concept, of this um, this kind of international policy, set of policies. And, um, and so one example that comes up that we use a lot because it comes from our area of research is the Swahili term mandaleo. And mandaleo um, means um, comes from the, the verb quenda, which is to go, um, and quendalea, which is to continue or to move on. And it can mean movement in time or space. It can, mean, um, it can mean movement in a figurative sense. It doesn't necessarily mean progress. It just means mobility or movement, right? So that's one example of thinking about how, you know, someone might be interpreting development policies in one way right or interpreting their actions or their engagement with development policies in one way that does not necessarily match up with the um the intentions behind kind of international development interventions yeah
1: and and i would add that you know africans are very much active in both helping on some levels to shape the development episteme and vernacular development Right. And so like, you know, so often when we talk about international development, there's a way in which we're talking about it in the continent of Africa. And yet and even in, in the first uh, quarter, you know, third of the book, it's not actually talking a lot about Africans. Right. The development episteme feels like it's very much about um, kind of European approaches and yet. Africans are foundational in that conversation and in those earlier conversations. And part of that is because they're bringing aspects of vernacular development into that piece. But I think that the larger question is always about what Africans are making of development and how they see their possibilities, what their possibilities for the future are because they're the ones making it.
0: You develop this point in the in the beginning of the book with the example of the Sierra Leone experience, and how this example, which predates a lot of uh, the, the the formal colonization of the late nineteenth and, and early twentieth century in the African continent, really shapes the thinking of of mm-hmm. British uh, of British colonizers or administrators. I'm not sure exactly what the terminology is here in, in the early 1800s. Can you un- talk about that example to kind of set up where how Africans bring uh, uh, their own ideas about development to the development episteme?
1: Certainly. So, you know, what happens in that early example with Sierra Leone, this, you know, starts in the 1870s and then moves into um, By the 1810s, it has become a British colony. Um, And within that moment, um, the the British colonizers are shaping their ideas of what they want out of this colony. Initially, the um, goal of it was to have a place to put uh, freed Africans from... North America, or African descended populations that had been in North and, and South America and bringing them back into the continent. Um, but very quickly, white colonizers are coming up with ways to um, think about what they want from these colonies and its economic self sufficiency, right? But and profit, all right? And so Um, The emphasis quickly becomes uh, part of labor, but how do you control labor? How do you do all of these things? And they very quickly partner with the missionaries, the church uh, missionary society, um, who then takes on all of the medical and educational elements, right? And so you you see this partnership develop between missionaries and colonizing uh, the colonizing in times, businesses, right, because they're companies and eventually governments um, to create what develops into the development episteme. Africans, on the other hand, are challenging this, and these African descended populations that are placed in Sierra Leone are finding ways to challenge the efforts to harness their labor so that it forces. The colonizing government to constantly try to find ways to reshape that those relationships. So initially, it's well, if you want to be uh, part of the colony, you have to do this work. Well, then the the African descended populations left. <laughs> they just moved out of the colony, and so it was like, oh, well, now we're going to force um, indentured contracts and things like that. So there was this constant way in which. Africans and African descended populations were engaging with the development episteme, but also finding ways to make it work for them. So they were getting an education that they wanted. If they were getting medical care that they wanted, they would continue to engage with the colonial state. Um, so it was a constant kind of push pull back and forth around that development.
0: I thought this example was very interesting because my sense is that we tend to talk about British kind of colonial thinking as being almost totally formed in India and then being imported to Africa. And so to spotlight this experience, this this moment where lots of what will come is being formed and is being formed and challenged in Africa with people who are of African descent, that to me felt uh, like a very important um, kind of contribution to highlight in, in the development of this episteme. And it brings me to a larger contribution that you make, which is to really challenge this idea that development is a concept that emerges after World War II, that development is the Bretton Woods system, which is where many standard textbooks and kind of surveys of development and development history will locate the ideas of development. And and your book strongly pushes back against that and says, if we really want to understand not only development, but the implications of development thinking, we have to go back to the enlightenment and we have to go back to the 19th century, because that is foundational. So if what I want to do now is to kind of highlight some of these inflection moments that that you have brought up in the book, um, where the discourse starts to ch- starts to change, starts to set in place, and then also change. So we have the experience in Sierra Leone, and then we really have the middle of the nineteenth century. Um, where do you see the origins of this development episteme?
2: I can I can start with that, and then and then I think you know. Um, if Liz, you want to <laughs> pick up on this, but but I think part of this this pushback against the World War II argument is, for me, it came out of my teaching, and I think it's same with with Liz as well. I mean that 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 it, it didn't seem sufficient in teaching the history of development to kind of wash over this early period and start in in World War II, especially when we're thinking about. Africa specifically, and the way in which Africa becomes so central to the development, the international development discourse. And if you, if you marginalize Africa as central to the development discourse and marginalized development as central to the discourse on Africa, then you don't see how deeply ingrained those two concepts are going back to the early 1800s, early mid 1800s. And, um, and for us, it was really about understanding not just kind of the intellectual traditions like the enlightenment that contribute to the, to the idea of development um, specifically for the continent of Africa, but also um, really grounding it in the history of intervention, which begins with abolitionist movements. And that's why the Sierra Leone example is so central, right? Liz, did you wanna yeah. say something else to that?
1: Well, and 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 so the 19th century is, this moment where it opens up with this burst of abolitionist efforts, right? Um, That are almost global. And yet by the end of the 19th century, we can see um, Brantlinger's work on that and others, by the end of the 19th century, those courses have really changed about Africans, right? And what has happened in that intervening period? Um, And what's happened is you've had the development of the fields of anthropology and, um, you know, the, like, thinking about um, eventually it'll move into eugenics, right? But thinking about the origins of human species. And um, so all of the pieces that are going along with that, And at the same time, you also in that intervening period, you have Europeans moving out into Africa, into Asia, and trying to take over parts of those areas and they have to justify it, right? And so like, this isn't a a new thing that, um, ways they justify it. What I think is interesting that we're saying, and. I have to say, I wasn't taught as an undergrad when I was taking African history classes that it was so often taught that it was like a cultural justification, that it was cultural superiority. And I think what we really are trying to point to is the the racial lens that was being used, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that eugenics is foundationally about race. Now, the definition of race that they may have been using at that time has shifted, right? We, you know, it's important to acknowledge that, but at the same time, it was centrally located in these ideas of race, right? Um, and so that—that's so important to thinking about the ways in which race has shaped and defined our approach to international development, because that is often alighted. And, and especially in that post-war moment, like that's exactly the moment, right? That Europeans stopped talking about race because of the Holocaust, right? And because of um, Nazi Germany's emphasis on race. And so they all start using the term culture, right? And so that's that moment of shift that I think is so crucial. Um, and we really need to understand that because that shaped so much of, what will come later as well.
0: Your intervention about foregrounding race as central to the development Episteme is is tremendously important. And I think it's something that a lot of works have, as you said, elided, maybe shied away from. Um, how do you see your role in writing this book and having this perspective as white scholars working in African studies? Because it is clear that part of why race has been so elided from the development discourse is that so many people who are writing and practicing so-called development are white themselves. And it's, mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable and difficult and people don't want to face it and
2: see these intellectual origins. Mm-hmm. That's such an important question. Uh, thank you for asking it. Um, yeah, I, this is, I mean, th- this is something that, you know, we also wanted to, That we also hope the book conveys uh, to a certain extent that um, we are by no means the first people to make some of these arguments and um, and we draw on a very deep intellectual history of African scholars and thinkers and philosophers in um, in telling the story i mean in fact the the title of the book the idea of development comes is a sort of nod to mudimbe's um the idea of africa right i mean this this notion that the construct of of africa as a racialized space um is um is inherently connected and inherently embedded in the development discourse so um you know this is something that that I mean, I can point to, you know, we can sit here and, and point to, you know, dozens of scholars that we cite in the book that um, have certainly made uh, many of these these arguments about development, about about this longer history of race. And um, and in fact, I was just uh, reading one that we didn't cite because I didn't read it before we finished writing, um, Sylvia Tamale's um, Decolonization and Afrofeminism, which is a really excellent book that came out um, earlier this year. Um, and you know, so so I would I would say that you know this is really our way of saying not so much you know we are the 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 best scholars to kind of point out these arguments, but um, but we. We intend our, in in many ways, it's sort of linked to our idea of our audience, right? But we intend this intervention to be connected to more of a, um, a reflection for the academy, a reflection for um, for the for people located in the global north who are um, working, who are interested in working in development, who are working in development, who are interested in in understanding these ideas, and um, and for for this community to take a real hard look. At ourselves, or I'll include myself in this, and really think about the ways in which um, our position has perpetuated these concepts, um, these racialized concepts that are embedded in the development episteme.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's it's really central to thinking about um, how we teach, right? So I mean it's not just the field of development studies, it's also the field of African history. Right. And so we as white scholars and African history, um, which is a a field that has so many layers of complicated racial histories from the kind of pushing by Herskovitz of um, W.E.B. Du Bois out, like keeping him from getting grants and others like racialized within the United States, as well as then racialized within the continent of Africa. Right, um, and so being aware of all of those layers, uh, it's really important for us to be teaching that to our students, um, and and being very open about those kind of conversations, so that, um, that that we can move forward, that we can create new possibilities, and with the acknowledgement that white people aren't central to necessarily those new possibilities.
3: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
0: You conclude the book by saying, in a sense, this book is a call to of decolonizing the mind. But whereas the famous phrase "decolonizing the mind" of Ngugi wa is about pushing back against uh, European languages and the ideologies that, that they contain and and foregrounding African languages and African culture. Your call here is to decolonize the mind of development practitioners and people in the global north who have internalized these ideas um, of uh, that, that are born in the 19th century and haven't critically examined them. And so that's very much the contribution of this book. So um, we have a lot of players that shape the development episteme. This is a difficult task to kind of summarize them in this conversation. But we we start off with, with the abolitionists, kind of broadly speaking, um, and the, the the business interests in the 19th century. And you also talk a little bit about the Islamic revolutions and the Sahel and these, um, you know, ideas of, of progress, broadly speaking, um, that are tied to monotheism. And then in the 1920s, you note that there is a change and there is a, 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 a secularization, what Faber might have called a disenchantment of of this idea of progress. So talk about that shift. How do you see the 1920s as being an important step in this story? Uh, Okay,
2: I'll take that on. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the the 1920s is is really what we see as a moment of what we call the the rise of this notion of science as, as the salvation, right? So So scientific expertise kind of steps in to the role of what had been up to that point primarily a kind of religious role, a missionary role in thinking about salvation and thinking about saving, right? So you know if we think about um, uh, Teju Cole's uh, you know white, white industrial, um savior complex right i mean this this concept is really really embedded in um in the history of development in africa obviously um but one of the the concepts that we're really thinking about is that shift from that religious understanding of salvation that comes out of the abolitionist movement into that secular um, scientific notion of, of salvation. So this is the time when you see the emergence of um, cultural relativism and in social anthropology, the emergence of um, new um, new sciences of you know environment and geography obviously building on some of the kind of um, cartographical developments of the of the 19th century. And, um, and psychology as well, um, new ideas about race and psychology, which are embedded in that eugenics, um, that, that emergence of, of eugenics theory, um, and especially ideas of population. I mean, po- po- the understanding of the the, Debate about how to um, control population, how to manipulate population is, is really embedded in that 1920s shift, um, 1920s and 30s um, period, the interwar period, when um, officials, colonial officials and international agencies begin to um, think about new ways to deal with with um, undernourishment and malnutrition, think about new ways of deal, dealing with reproduction and um, reducing infant mortality, increasing um, birth rates, right? All of these concepts really embed, um, these kind of large scale population concepts, which are very much connected to ideas about race and racial health are embedded in that, that kind of scientific turn of the 1920s.
0: And, and this is one of the, the things that the book does so well is to reveal these cyclical, um, Mm -mm, ideas that kind of get recycled. So you could have a debate in the 1840s in England about uh, monogenesis and polygenesis of the human species. And that can take you to uh, birth control and population control campaigns of the 1960s and 70s up through Mm -hmm. uh, where we are today in terms of what reproductive rights mean and who has a right to choose when and how to have a baby or not. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I think that, that building the links between all of these steps is, um, is what, what you contribute so well here. So once we have science that enters onto the scene and we have missionaries who are still present, but the, 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 the theological goal or the conversion goal recedes a little bit, because now we're converting not to Christianity as much as we're converting to modernization. Right, that's that's where we're moving, and I think the Andorans of modernization is is the phrase that that um, that's been used to to describe this period. And you refer to them as the secular missionaries. So I know this concept is from Larry Grubbs's book. But what does the secular missionaries bring um, in in the era in which they emerged that that you see as important in the fifties and sixties?
1: <laughs> okay, um, so. The secular missionaries bring a new zeal, like the same kind of zeal that was brought in the 19th century to saving souls is to saving Africans for modernity, right? Um, And secular missionaries were um, there to pull all of uh, Africans away from their out of its thick past, like pastoralists needed to become farmers, and they, you know, everybody needed to move along those different stages of modernization, and the glories of being able to try to jump stages of modernization, right? Um, and so the effort of the secular missionaries, and um, you know, was to pull Africans into. Um, the, into the future, right, um, whether they wanted to be in that future or not, I think was the one of the key points. And, and you, you know, the 1960s were the, the um, decade of Africa. And, you know, this is the moment of independence across much of eastern and western Africa. Um, you have the rise of the Peace Corps. So the United States actively sending young idealistic Americans with a college education to teach Africans how to create pit latrines when right they already knew how to do all of those things right um, but it created a new cycle of enthusiastic zeal for that white people specifically from and it wasn't exclusively white I should say but that Americans and Europeans had something to offer Africans in terms of knowledge production that Africans wouldn't know themselves, right? Well, Corey, you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's so, and this is part of the cyclical nature that we're, that we're referring to here, right? That, that, you know, the missionary zeal of the... Of you know the so-called secular missionaries um, and um, and then Larry Grubbs is talking about Peace Corps and other American um, interventionists in particular, but um, but this expands beyond. I mean, we take it into really into the present with or or in the period since you know the 1980s and 90s with um, the NGO, the rise of the NGO as the primary um, sort of. Um, deliverer of development programs, right, and development agendas. So um, the same kind of, you know, zeal as, as Liz mentioned, that you see in that 19th century, um, you know, sort of abolitionist and civilizing mission movement, uh, you can see in um, these other entities that, um, that, you know, come in as a, um, in as especially in a voluntary aspect, you know, they're thinking of themselves as kind of voluntary um, um, aid, right, to um, to African Africans in the name of development, right. That this is very much part of that that cyclical nature of um, of how development functions.
0: Another element that you bring up, which I found very interesting, was to think about uh, the development industry as we know it, right, in this in this NGOification period. Um, that development is practiced in segments. And these segments are either segments in terms of a project, the famous development project, right? We're we're focusing in a very targeted and limited way on on clean water, for example. When of course, the quality of life and livelihoods are very interconnected things. They can't be isolated into these variables that that you can identify and target as if, as if the context doesn't exist. And on the other hand, the segmentation of space in Africa, where these targeted initiatives are targeted also only for primarily ethnic groups, the, the, the reinvigorated way that we speak of what colonial anthropologists used to call tribes. And the segmentation, not only of the thinking about the practice of development, but also the way that space is divided in Africa, it, it, it reinforces uh, the development episteme that you guys refer to. Where did you, How did you come to that insight? Or what did you see that made you realize that that was, that was the way that this, that this worked? Because I think it's something that is intuitive, when you realize it, but really coming to that insight seemed really important to me.
2: Do you want to Do you want to start with this one? <laughs> I have some ideas, but I, I yeah, I, I'm still mulling them over. <laughs> right,
1: um, you know, everything was a project, um, and and when I guess when I started teaching the history of development, um, I had actually used, Blaine Hardin wrote a book in the 1980s about Africa, dispatches from a fragile continent, right? He was a journalist and very, um, whatever, uh, like he, he was focused on these specific moments, but it also allowed you to, it allowed me to start thinking about how one specific project could radiate out into like sort of the he was very focused on the absurdity of projects so a frozen fish factory by Lake Turkana right which is out in the middle of a a arid very hot region and why would you do that on a lake that moves periodically and kind of uh, recedes in different points so like he was very interested in the absurdity of this but I think Um, It was thinking about how everything felt so piecemeal, right? When we talked about those different pieces of projects. And it was so much like the missionaries in the 19th Mm -hmm. century that I had worked with on my first book and looking at these sort of piecemeal projects that they would develop. And when a missionary couple would go home on furlough, the project, like whatever they were doing, ended right? And likewise, with development, that the projects, the pieces, how things just fell apart when one person wasn't there, right? And it told you how um, localized development could be and how, but I don't mean localized by African localized, I mean localized to a particular person, right? And how it also wasn't grounded in the communities, right? And so you could see how development truly wasn't becoming like the the way that it was segmented kept it from ever becoming truly grounded into the communities. So, but Corianne,
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I found the same concept, the same issue, I guess you can call it. Um, When I was looking at material for my first book on the history of, Girls' education and um, women's professionalization and teaching in, in particular. And so it was this, this kind of the gap between the big picture, right? The big huge ideas about development and modernization and progress. And we're gonna, you know, implement this education system and instantly transform everybody into these modern subjects, right? And and then the gap between that and this incredibly unstable. Uneven, ad hoc way that that actually gets implemented. So, I was thinking about this in terms of some of the the development projects that gets that got celebrated in Zanzibar, for example, the British colonial development projects. Like there, you know, there was this one um, project um, that was all about integrating the local schools with, you know, an introduction of a of a town hall with, you know, a savings plan. And, you know, there's like this whole, like, we're going to create, we're going to engineer, a socially engineer, basically, this, this perfect little community. And I was thinking, well, this sounds exactly like, like, um, Ujamaa, you know, in Tanz- you know, and looking in post-colonial Tanzania, right, this kind of um, post-colonial development project, which is modeled, you know, after- and so all of these sort of things repeat themselves, this idea of what they're talking about. Um, And this actually relates sort of to something that Liz is working on now, this villages question, the question of creating the model village or creating the model school or creating the model, um, you know, development project, irrigation project, whatever it is, right, that it becomes one thing that symbolizes all the wonders of, of the big ideas, but even that that one project doesn't necessarily pan out and even if that one project does pan out in a certain way for that community all it does is is you know many cases it exacerbates the the inequalities um in the broader community right so it's like okay well that village gets you know special treatment so they have clean water and they have this brand new school and they have all this money coming in for um these these you know agricultural projects, but what about this village next next to it, right? So, and that just creates more social tension and, and political tension around that notion of the haves and the have nots, right? So this to me seemed inherently connected to the colonial project of divide and conquer, right? The colonial project of identifying isolated, um, communities and creating a notion of um, of separate identities, right? And it's embedded. It's embedded in ideas of separate development on, on many levels. Whether you're talking about the creation of the concept of the tribe as a as a unique inherent entity, or whether you're talking about the distinction between either um, the racial distinction in in terms of understandings of separate development under under segregated colonial spaces, right? All of this is about creating certain, um, or, or all of this, I should say, results in perpetuating certain inequalities that are based in the identity of the, of the local, right?
0: Right. So these, this way of thinking is very pernicious because it, it, it it can attack also directly solidarities that, that could be mobilized against, against. Exactly. But I, I think... What you point out, particularly when you're talking about the, the, you know, post-independence modernization period where we have the very famous big man modernizers, uh, whether they're the Sengors, the Nyerere's, the Nkrumas, who harness the development episteme, the logic of the development episteme in their anti-colonial struggles, very much as a liberatory way of thinking saying, if this is the logic, then where are, where are the results of that logic that you've offered us or that you've, you've said is the way that it works? And then, and then, however, there's also something that's not liberatory about the development episteme that they reproduce in, in their big um, state-led, top-down projects. Um, would you kind of pull out one of these examples and describe it
2: for us? that's me okay um sure uh let's see well i think one of the most obvious examples that that is probably well known to a lot of um, scholars of african history and african studies um is um the example of nkrumah's akosombo dam project right this is something that Stefan Miescher and and several other scholars have been working on Um, but this is this was one of those case studies that i think really highlights um the you know you have this this rhetoric of of you know anti-colonialism and critique of neo-colonial um interventions around around um especially around the question of development right and um this you know the you know, Nkrumah then embraces this idea of development as a um, as a way to demonstrate independence and self-sufficiency right but at the same time, the, because of the sort of mechanics of how, um, not just how modernization theory is envisioned, but how funding structures, development funding structures worked, right? The, um, the attempt to create the system that demonstrated Ghana's modernity and demonstrated their self-sufficiency resulted in certain level of dependence on now American investment and American control over these development projects, in particular the the Akosombo Dam project, which was um, also related to a plan to um, to expand electricity to provide electricity to a large number of people, to um, create a new kind of industry around an aluminum industry, right, based on using that that hydroelectric power, um, and um, and this was a you know, colossal failure in many ways, right? I mean, it resulted in the forced migration of, of thousands of people, resulted in um, it, failures in, in, in promises, the failure to meet up, um, to live up to certain promises that Nkrum had made to um, Ghanaian citizens. And, um, and for all of the kind of the hoopla around (laughs) um, the what you know, stuff on major calls the spectacle right of, of the, of the dam project, um, the, the attempt to demonstrate, you know, that this is the way that that this kind of modernization project is the um, definitive marker of independence was ultimately a facade right, and, um, and exposed all of the ways in which the development episteme perpetuated um, many of the global inequalities as well as local um, inequalities that um, began under colonialism, really. I mean, this wasn't, akosombo Dam project begins actually under the British um, colonial period. It's not actually in a, in a completely in, an, an Nkrumah invention.
0: Yeah, and this connects to a point that you make, which I think is, you know, uh, comes out of John Iliff's work and the idea that the structural poverty in Africa is, is, is quite recent. There's conjunctural poverty, but that there are many mechanisms in um, African societies to manage wealth distribution and to manage care for the needy that are completely pushed out by, uh, by the development of as it as it begins to form and harden over the 19th and 20th centuries. So where are we now? in, in the development industry, the way it thinks about itself, the way these big organs, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, where is the conversation now? Is there a sense of the acknowledgement of this colonial paternalism and, and racism, or is this something that you think is still woefully unknown or unacknowledged?
1: I think it's acknowledged, it's beginning to be acknowledged, right? Um, That there are organizations that are, so there are several organizations that have started to move their headquarters into the continent of Africa, away from the global north, right? Um, I think those are important steps to say like, oh, our work is, is in the global south primarily, then we need to be located in the, you know, because that has been a symbol all by itself of this, where are the headquarters of these international organizations. Um, But the World Bank and the IMF, while those are both still, um, I mean, they're they're part of the too-big-to-fail, right? These are billions of dollars, right, Uh, industry. And, and you do have the development of, say, the BRICS um, and the African Development Bank and other entities that are trying to kind of come in and do some of the work, but it's still the same structure, right? It's still this larger structure that is focused on international development and very top down rather than thinking about the local. And here's the rub. There's always been local African organizations, right? Um, They haven't always been called NGOs, right? That terminology of the non-governmental organization comes out of the uh, post-World War II period. Um, But there had always been local African organizations across the continent that people are developing and building and taking care of their communities. Um, And now I think you have um, a more vocal call from some of those local organizations to to take more control and to have more say. But as long as you still have the NGOization um, to I think use Gregory Mann's term um, of the government, right? Like that, so much of African government kind of work that we would think of as being governmental work, like the health departments, and education departments, as long as so much of that is still being pushed off into non-governmental entities, you still are going to have this problem, right? So there's so many moving pieces or moving parts into this larger framework um, that, yes, I think people are recognizing it africans have recognized it all along right like make that clear it's um whether europeans are and europeans and americans and kind of the global north and how they how they deal with it right and and i think that there are some movements to shift but it's it's small it's still really i think really small
2: yeah I would use the word concession <laughs> um, when I think about this because I you know have lots of conversations about students you know grad grad students who are working in in development um, and uh, not in history, right I mean talking about grad students in other in other um, areas of of UC Davis, for example, which has a lot of people working in development. Um, talking about, uh, talking with colleagues in other areas, talking to people, um, you know, a good friend of mine in Uganda, who, um, you know, is is part of this development project to run a school and, you know, have a farm. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of a multi, multifaceted um, project to try to keep things running, right? Um, the conversations that that come up over and over again are about, I mean, ultimately it comes down to funding, right? And then and when it comes down to funding, it means, that um, the entities that are seeking funding have to present themselves in a particular way that um, satisfies the interests of the funder, right? And as long as the language and as long as the framing is defined by the funders in that sense, then, um, then we're gonna have the same conversations over and over again. And yes, things have changed to a certain extent in the sense that um, you know, GDP is no longer the primary marker of understanding, you know, sort of the level of development. It's a much more complicated, you know, human development index and, and looking at, you know, the however many principles there are now in the, in the, um, what is it, the millennial um, project, and I'm forgetting. The,
1: the, the, the millennial development Goals, yeah, the Sustainable yeah.
2: Development Goals, the Sustainable yeah. Development Goals. Um, you know, it, it, yes, it's much more complicated. There are many more people who are working in develop, who, development who consider themselves much more attuned to um, cultural needs and interests and, and differences and in, in understandings of, of how development functions or how agriculture functions or, you know, whatever sort of development problem you're dealing with um, in, on the local level. Um, but I would call these concessions. And, and I think um, what, what Atiana O'Diambo wrote in, I can't remember 2000, I can't remember the year of this essay that, uh, that we cite and the conclusion, but it's a, a, a 2000 something, early 2000s essay, um, where he, you know, he talks about the, the problem of culture, right? This, that the discussion, the debate is still framing culture, African cultures as problems, right? and it's like okay well if we really want this development project to work we have to contend with this cultural issue here wherein blah 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 whatever it is right which which is a stumbling block it's a it's considered a stumbling block to development and uh, and i think this is this is what i would consider the concession you know that some of the big discourses that are still determining funding and defining how funding is distributed recognize these nuances but they recognize them the, in the sense that they offer concessions, or they recognize them as potential stumbling blocks, rather than as um, a piece, a central piece of the of the development episteme, a central piece of of you know how development should function, and and that's where I think you know again I mean this is it's difficult to have this conversation because so many people invested you know in these in development projects and development funding initiatives are invested in them because they believe wholeheartedly that they are going to improve the lives of the lives of africans right i mean they they believe this and 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 they have evidence to back it up they have evidence of successful projects right and um and this is not to say that that the, those beliefs are misguided right the point that, that we're trying to, um, to get at in this book is to demonstrate how, you know, taking away the indivi- the individual's intention, if you, if you look at the structure as a whole and you look at the legacies of the structure and how little it has actually changed over the past 200 years, then you can really see how... How, in some ways, um, you know, blinded we are, right? When we when we attempt to engage in these projects, however good intentioned, we are.
1: And and I I can't not mention Bono, right? Yes. Corey and I have this running joke. We should I say we we made jokes about. No. Okay. Um, so, but um, what you know, Bono. We mentioned in chapter 12 at the beginning that he says, you know, oh, right, I finally get it. What's going to save Africa is economic and investment. And we need to, you know, partner with Africans in economic investment. And like the language he's using, it's almost exactly David Livingston's 1860s call, right? So it's again that loop it's a bigger loop but it's still it's a 150 year old loop back to the same kind of language that that we continue to repeat the same things as corey said so like if you take away the intentions what you see are the same frameworks over and over and over again
0: yeah i think this book offers a, a structural critique that isn't a mechanistic critique Uh, of of the history of development or this development episteme. Um, And in being able to link Bono and Livingstone, we see something that is at once much more historical and much more textured than some of the analyses, which were very important uh, and foundational of the 70s and kind of the dependency school, but that took away some of this this textured Um, analysis that that you bring to it. I want to read the uh, part of the last paragraph of the book. Uh, Quote, the illusion of the omnipotence of the development episteme will be exposed only when we can see clearly the crumbling stones out of which it was built. Development is not the powerful edifice it claims to be. It is a holdover of colonialism that is quickly losing relevance in our current world. So some beautiful sentences there to kind of sum up this um, structural and historical critique. As we come to a close, I want to ask you both what you're working on um, now going forward. But before that, Liz, I'm an avid reader of acknowledgements in books. And you have a very interesting uh, uh, acknowledgement in which you thank your community of, um, of, of Africanist scholars on Facebook that you felt really contributed to this project. And I think since this book is so much about knowledge production, uh, it's interesting to think about how social media is affecting knowledge production. So what did, why did you choose to do that? And did you feel that it was unusual or did you feel that it was just exactly the right thing to do?
1: You know, I have to say that this has been, just as Corey and I have created a collaboration in this book, Um, the kind of intellectual journey that it has gotten, at least me, here. Um, I don't want to speak for Corey in that way. Um, uh, That has been a collaborative process as well. And social media has really offered that. And, you know, on Facebook, I still have some family members and high school friends on there. But it has really, for me, become a space where African historians exchange ideas. and post uh, articles and readings and um, start pushing each other to think in new ways, right? And so I think for me, it has been so foundational as a space to learn and grow intellectually and to really ask kind of questions of our field, of the kind of larger discipline of history, Um, and, you know, a lot of questions that we've talked about around race and, as well, and that has shown up in this book. And, and so I wanted to acknowledge the importance of those conversations, because I think social media does really offer that. I, it's, it's funny, because I'm on Twitter as well, and I find Twitter a little harder to navigate, although I am also starting to kind of develop um spaces there where I'm just I'm learning. People are pushing me to think in new ways and to question and to make these connections. And and in a, a lot of ways I see the book as
2: as an output of that. I
1: don't know. Corey, you're mm-hmm. part of that network as well, if you have thoughts.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I would agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 idea that um that yeah that, those conversations have have certainly pushed me in ways that that uh, in, in directions that I maybe have thought about going, but you know didn't have the confidence to go right you know or or maybe think about things in new ways that i hadn't thought about before and i'm yeah I, I agree hundred percent
0: well, it makes me wonder if yeah. part of the the way forward in dismantling this edifice of Uh, colonial development discourses, part of that is going to be having social media, you know, give a platform to people who are not usually considered as part of the knowledge production around development. And I know social media has many, many uh, uh, deleterious effects on society, but this might be one to at least hope uh, say, oh, maybe there's there's something hopeful here. So you
2: have closed this- Definitely.
0: Um, which I'm sure feels really good. And the book is fantastic. I'll be using it to teach um, a course in the history of development next semester. And I urge everyone who is teaching a course in development to pick this up because it's written in an extremely clear way. Um, And there is a really good mix of general and specific that I think is really helpful, um, particularly for students to to, to think with and to think through. But so this, this chapter is closed. What is next on the table? Maybe Corey, if you'll talk to us about the work, what you're working on right now.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, my current project that I'm working on now is about development in a different sense, <laughs> um, about uh, maturation and uh, looking at the history of maturation in East Africa, and I it does actually engage with some of these debates that um, that we're talking about in this book in the sense that I'm thinking about a kind of long, a long history of ideas about puberty and maturation, coming of age, standardization of age, age of consent, right? All of these, all of these themes from uh, really throughout the course of the 20th century and looking kind of broadly across Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Um, And part of it is to try to understand, you know, how we, how we get at this kind of standardized notion of puberty as a cultural marker of coming of age which is really an invention of the of the early 20th century and how this conflicts with the uh, kind of international human rights discourses about um, standardized um, age of consent or age of majority, um, which of course today is age 18 across um, the three countries. So, um, so that that latter part is kind of part of that, you know, development problem in the contemporary sense, the problem of child marriage or the problem of, you know, um, you know, underage sex or whatever, right? Um, that that this is so part of the the book is that I'm working on now is to think um, about the longer historical. Um, transformations in ideas of maturation and how we get these kind of, how we get this bifurcation um, between a so-called cultural definition of maturation and a legal or human rights definition of maturation.
1: Okay, Um, so as any good historian, I have a lot of different projects that I'm working on. And uh, there's two that I'm simultaneously writing at the same time because there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, And it's because I'm thinking of uh, in kind of Eastern Africa and into the Indian Ocean world around um, kind of slavery in the 19th century and trauma and thinking about the experience of um, the slave trade and what that meant for individuals and that trauma and how that shapes their um, life experiences. And within that, I'm also then thinking about and influenced by um, Sadia Hartman's uh, ideas around radical refusal and the role of um, girls and women in Eastern Africa to both live their lives and work within social norms, but to also at moments in time to refuse in one way or another to accept the norms that are being placed on them? And what are the ways that they do that? And what are the ways that they challenge our understanding of East African history in the kind of late, well, mid to 19th century into the early 20th century?
0: So a lot more exciting ideas to come. Thank you both so much for being on the podcast, for joining us today and for discussing your book, The Idea of Development
2: in Africa, A History. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Elisa, for having us. This was great. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.